0: when the pressure mounts and uh, things are not going so well, it can seem very appealing to just go somewhere where no one will find you, no one will know you, a place of safety, a place of peace. Uh, You may have uh, seen the ads for onthebeach.com, whose premise for why you should book one of their holidays is that you can escape. You can have caused the most catastrophic flood in your neighborhood or poison the local uh, community with your dodgy cakes, but if you escape to the beach, uh, it's all okay. Everything's better on the beach. But uh, but seriously, it's not just about taking a holiday, we can all need a holiday from time to time, but giving up and running away from it all is a, it's a tempting proposition. You know, when resources are stretched and relationships are strained, it's something we can feel in normal family life, but also in Christian ministry. According to one study, uh, 60 or 70% of those who enter Christian ministry will not be doing so 10 years later. of Christian ministers last less than five years in the ministry. Of course, that's not just true for those who are in full-time ministry. The The attractiveness of running away from giving up, from having that spirit of despair, is particularly strong when we feel hopeless and vulnerable. When everything and everyone seems against you, when the people and structures you've relied upon for security and protection, for order and fairness are no longer there. And that is pretty much the situation that the psalmist David was facing in Psalm 11. We we don't know the exact circumstances that gave rise to this psalm, but we do know that David was often in danger, wasn't he? Uh, Whether it was in the court of Saul or being chased in the wilderness, or facing the rebellion of Absalom, his own son, he was often in danger. What we can see very clearly is it emerges from a time of crisis in his life. The godly were under attack, and the pattern of normal life was in a state of upheaval. Now, there are really sort of two voices recorded in the psalm. There is that of David at the start of verse 1, And then also from verse 4 to the end of the psalm. The other voice um, is actually spoken by David, but he's actually quoting some other people. And that starts uh, in the second half of verse 1 and goes to the end of verse 3. And the people that David is quoting, most of the commentators agree, are probably David's counselors or his friends And their advice is this flee like a bird to your mountain. For look, the wicked bend their bows, they set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? So I think you get the gist of their message. It's a very simple message. Their message is head to the hills. Run for your life. Quit while the going's good. Give up and run away. And and they've got some persuasive arguments for taking that course of action. Uh, Firstly, there's the devious attacks of the wicked. These enemies were not interested in a fair fight out in the open. They operated out of the shadows, out of the darkness. They're hidden from view and they have their bows loaded, ready for attack. Uh, so there's no opportunity for their unsuspecting victims to defend themselves. Now these may be, have been, in David's case, literal arrows to maim and kill. As we've said, he certainly faced real physical dangers of that type. But they could also be a metaphor for arrows that slander, deceptive and destructive words aimed to undermine And destroy. But whichever it is, his friends tell him, David, they are aiming at the upright in heart. They are aiming at you. But it isn't just you that's under attack, David. Even the foundations are being destroyed. The foundations of government, of fairness and justice, that sense of security and protection for those who do what is right, they are being destroyed. The ground rules on which society operate are breaking down. See, it's a time of crisis, not just for you, David, but also for our whole nation. And in the face of such a situation, his friends, as it were, raise their hands in despair, and they say, well, what can the righteous do? What can we do? I wonder if you've ever been in a situation like that where you've kind of gone, well, what can we do? What can we do? There is no defense against such opposition, no foundation in society to fall back upon and to rely upon. What can we do? Well, there's only one thing, as far as they're concerned, to do. That's to flee like a bird to your mountain. Now, David's friends are well-meaning. There's no doubt about that. Excuse me. They care for his safety. Their advice also seems logical. I mean, mountains are great places to hide out in. I think David himself had successfully hidden in the mountains before. And and actually, there are absolutely times when it's right to flee. Some of you who know your Bibles might be thinking of some verses that Jesus said in Matthew 10, uh, where he said, you'll be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. So then, uh, the question is, why does David reject his friend's advice in the way that he does in verse 1? You see what he says? He says, how can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? You can't say that to me. You mustn't say that to me. So what's wrong with these friends' advice? Well, let's have a look at it, verse 2, at what they actually say. They say, for look, his friends say. You know, Do you see that? They are looking at things, but they are looking at things just from what they observe happening. They are evaluating things purely from their own human perspective. Uh, Maybe they're also looking at things from the experience that they've had, maybe experience of others that they can call upon. I'm sure if they could have got a good Wi-Fi connection, they would have Googled it to see what what the, the situation was and what they should do about it. But... What had they had done? What had they done here? They had forgotten. Who had they forgotten? They would forgotten the most important person of all. They had forgotten God. God was not in their thinking at all. As we just, in the words of the hymn that we've just sung, we might say they were walking by sight and not by faith. See, what was needed were eyes of faith to see a greater reality that would actually transform everything. Their advice was rejected because it was human wisdom that was devoid of faith in God. And when we leave God out of the picture, what will we have? We will inevitably only have doubt and despair. That's all we will have, as his friends had here. But in contrast, uh, David starts the psalm with his great response of faith to these fearful friends. Look what he says, beginning of the psalm, In the Lord I take refuge. David's ultimate security was not in the mountains. It wasn't in the foundations of society. It wasn't in his friends or even physical safety. It was in God. And something I learned this week is that um, actually the Hebrew word for refuge comes from a root word that means to flee for protection. And so David is essentially saying, if I'm going to run for protection, I'm not going to run to the mountains, I'm going to run to the Lord. I'm going to trust in God. In the Lord I take refuge And this wasn't just something that David had been taught or had learnt or had read. It was something that was born out of a conviction of faith that was earthed in his own experience. Many times, David had experienced that God could be trusted in every circumstance of his life. And time and again in the Psalms, David acknowledges that God has been his refuge, that God is his refuge. It's one of the great recurring themes of the Psalms. I, I did a quick search and found that there was 43 times the psalmist refers to the Lord as his refuge. And in the remaining verses of the Psalms, he tells, he explains to his friends why God can be trusted, why he is the one to run to, even when The foundations of society are being destroyed. And we see that firstly in verse 4. The first thing is because God is still in control. Uh, David raises his sights to a bigger reality, as we've said in verse 4, and he says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. As one uh, Christian writer puts it, when the outlook looks grim, look up. See, the Lord is on his heavenly throne. The point David is making is not that God is remote and therefore unable to help him, but that God is in the position of ultimate authority. And he rules, he is the sovereign ruler. Of the whole universe. And and what's more, God is seated on his throne. God is not running anywhere. He's not running away. He isn't going anywhere. And he's also in his holy temple, a temple whose foundations are firm and solid, not crumbling away. God is in control. God is totally self-sufficient. He needs no help. You know, if I'm sick, then I, I need a doctor. If my car doesn't start, I need the help of a mechanic. If um, the central heating packs in, as happened to us this year on Christmas Day, well, I need a plumber. Of course, very difficult to get a plumber on Christmas Day, but, and, you know, even as a somewhat middle-aged man, I still, when I want to know whether or not my clothes match, I still need my wife to tell me. Uh, Sad as it is. But you know, God lacks nothing. There is nothing that God cannot do. And uh, we could probably break into song at that point, couldn't we? But uh, there is nothing that God cannot do. So firstly, God, we can trust God because he's still in control even when things are going wrong. Secondly, we can trust God because he sees everything. And we've already been thinking about that with the children this morning. He sees everything, he, if, he says at the end of verse four, he observes the sons of men, he, his eyes examine them. See, God saw everything the enemy was doing. He saw David's situation. And nothing is too small or trivial to escape his attention. And nothing is so great as to be beyond his power to control it. But there is a problem. I I was struck by some words I read uh, some years ago in a a book by uh, the author Jeff Bridges. He said one of the problems with the sovereignty of God is it frequently does not appear that God is in control of the circumstances of our lives. We see unjust or uncaring or even clearly wicked people doing things that adversely affect us. And it seems, as the situation here, that what is God doing? It isn't clear. The wicked seem to have free reign to attack the righteous. The upright in heart seemed to be left to suffer defeat. It seems that God was not at all in control of the circumstances. But wasn't that exactly how it looked when the Lord Jesus died upon the cross? It seemed, didn't it, like Jesus' mission had failed, that God was absent or somehow caught unaware that he was unable to prevent the evil intent and acts of men. I don't know if you can remember back to the Millennium Dome from the year 2000. Apparently uh, in the Millennium Dome there was a, a kind of a Jesus exhibit. And one of the notes on that exhibit said this about Jesus. It just said, Jesus died tragically young. Jesus died tragically young, and that's how many people see it. But when we read the New Testament, we see that wasn't the case at all. Acts 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 22, says this. Peter, speaking to his fellow Israelites, said, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. You know, God's sovereignty is mind-blowing. We often think about maybe that God is able to do great miracles, but one of the greatest miracles of all is the way that our sovereign God can take just ordinary things, things where people do things with evil intent and wicked things as well as good things, and God is able to bring about his purposes in all of those things. So even when terrible things happen and those that oppose God seem to have great power and authority, the cross reminds us that in all circumstances, God is still on the throne, that he's in control and he's working his purposes out for the glory and the good of his people. But you know... Sometimes, even a long time after events have happened, we struggle to see what the purposes of God are. But um, David reminds us why sometimes, as God's people, we go through times of difficulty and suffering. At the beginning of verse 4, he says, The Lord examines the righteous. Or in the ESV, as we read earlier, The Lord tests the righteous. The Lord tests the righteous. You know, we can trust God, knowing that God in His sovereignty deliberately allows difficult times sometimes to come into our lives, into the lives of His people, in order to test us. But it's not the sort of tests that we fail, it's not the sort of tests that you used to dread when you were at school. It's not a test to earn enough brownie points to please God. Now, David is using the language of the purifier of metals. It's a test to refine our faith. When everything is going well in our lives, it's easy to say that God is my refuge. But I think there would be probably a number of us here this morning who would be able to say that actually it was in the times when the dark clouds and storms of life came along, when things really did go pear shaped. And all sorts of problems came into our lives. They were the times when we learned what it was to really trust and utterly depend on him in ways we had never done before. See, God is in control. He sees everything. And he allows us to go through difficult times in order to strengthen our faith. Uh, how do we, before, before we look at the final two things uh, for reasons for trusting him. How do we apply those things? Well, first of all, when I look at Psalm 11, actually, if I'm honest, sometimes I'm just like David's friends. I look at a situation, I do Google it. I look at the facts, and I I can see, uh, as I consider more and more of the circumstances and situations, the more I too can become a voice of despair. What can we do? What's to be done? And what I need in situations like that is a friend like David to gently say to me, you can't say that, just look up and see with the eyes of faith. See what is there in God's word. I need them to remind me that God is, in his love always wills what is best for me. In his wisdom, he always knows what is best. And in his sovereignty, he has the power to bring it about. You know, God has given us each other in a church like this to encourage one another, to do that for each other, to help each other, to see the reality of God's sovereignty in all things, to help us, to help one another through the troubles of life. The second thing to just say here is that we were reminded by the psalmist that the sovereign Lord of all the earth is in his holy temple. And the temple, among other things, is the meeting place of God and his people. In the Old Testament, of course, it was only through the high priest and only at specific times and in specific ways. But through the Lord Jesus, we have the perfect high priest. He's torn that curtain that was there in two, and we have free access to the very presence of God. We can actually come into the very presence of the one who rules over the whole universe. So when I think about that and I think how foolish I am that so often it's only as a last resort that I turn to God in prayer. Why do I do that and rely upon my own so limited and feeble uh, strengths and efforts when I can turn to the one who knows everything. Well, let's have a look finally then at the last two reasons why uh, we can trust in God when things are going wrong. Firstly, in verse five, because God is just, It says, the Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. Those who who oppose uh, God's people, the ones who are shooting the arrows out of the shadow, uh, may appear like they will get away uh, scot-free as it were and, and if you were to turn back into the previous psalm psalm 10 and verse 11 you can see that's exactly what those people thought themselves uh, the wicked person who lies in wait for the helpless victim said to themselves god will never notice he covers his face and never sees of course we've already seen that's not true but The God who is in control not only sees everything, but he's also a God of justice. And wouldn't it be an awful thing if all the wrongs in the world were never brought to justice? But David knows that although he may be suffering great injustices at the hands of those who wanted to hurt him and to harm him, he can entrust all of that to the God who judges justly. He can be confident that God will take care of it. He doesn't need to take matters into his own hands. He can trust God with all of this, knowing that God will ultimately bring about justice. This also reminds us that God is a God who utterly abhors sin. His whole moral nature is set against sin. He hates the actions of the wicked and the violent. He hates what they do to others. He hates the injustice of their actions. He he hates their rebellion against him. But I guess you will have noticed that the psalmist actually says a bit more than that. He says, God hates the wicked and those who love violence with a passion. God hates the wicked from the very core of his being. And that I dare say, makes us feel uneasy. We know how Jesus loves sinners. We know that God showed his love to us while we were still sinners uh, because Christ died for us. Well, maybe these words from the theologian Don Carson would help us. He says, the trouble is we see wrath and love as being mutually exclusive. We don't see the wrathful person as loving. In other words, we don't naturally see what the Bible seems to say to us, that God can direct his wrath and his love to the same individual at the same time. God's wrath is not a blind rage, but an entirely reasonable response to offenses against his holiness. Now, we cannot fully understand perhaps all of that, but what these verses show us is that human sin or rebellion are far more serious. They're far more a serious offense to God than we often think. And God will one day punish all wickedness and unrighteousness. David is alluding to what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah and Jesus uh, said in Luke's Gospel... It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. You know, we may be tempted to fear situations You may be tempted to fear people. But Jesus warns us, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that can do no more. But I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Of course, the truth is that we're all unrighteous by nature we're we're rebels against the god who has made us but the wonderful news of the gospel is that at the same time that god's wrath was justly against us his great love was directed towards us and he so loved us he sent his one and only son into the world provide a way of escape from this terrible wrath to come The Lord Jesus came to die in our place. He not only took our sin upon Himself, He took that cup of God's wrath that was rightly ours. And He died in our place so that we might wonderfully be forgiven, but also that we might receive His righteousness. And you know, as those, if we have put our trust in Him, if He is our refuge this morning, one of the things surely we should do is to lovingly warn others of that terrible wrath that is to come, of the judgment that is to come, to point them to the Savior that we know and love. Well, finally, in verse 7, one final reason why David said, To his friends that his refuge was in the Lord and it was because of a joy that was to come verse 7 for the Lord is righteous he loves justice the upright will see his face you know David had an insight into the future of a hope that in the words of our closing song is a hope that stands the test of time a hope that lifts lifted his eyes beyond the beckoning grave to see the matchless beauty of a day divine when David would behold God's face and that glorious future is something we we need to remind one another of to help us in the midst of life's struggles again the lord jesus of course faced far more suffering and opposition and pain than any of us have ever faced and ever will face. But he did so in the knowledge of the joy that was set before him. And let's just close with reminding ourselves of those famous words in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. When we feel like running away and giving up, when even the foundations we've taken for granted seem to be being destroyed, What can we do? We can take refuge in our God because He is in control. He sees everything. He even works through our difficult moments of life to help us to become more like Him. We can take refuge in Him because He's just and we can entrust all the wrongs of this world to Him who judges justly. And finally, Because if we've taken refuge in him, God is for us. And if he is for us, who can be against us? Therefore, be certain of this, there is a day coming when those who have trust in him, him, will see him face to face. So fix your eyes on Jesus. Amen.